All right, well, here's a truth that rings true from the beginning of the book of Ephesians to the end. That once you have a relationship with Jesus, everything in your life changes. A relationship with Jesus changes everything. It doesn't change a lot of things. It doesn't change most things. It changes everything. When Jesus invades our heart through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, everything, all things change. The beginning of Ephesians details for us the spiritual changes and oh, what amazing changes they are. We go from death to life, from lost to found, from bound for hell to bound for heaven. We go from an enemy of God to be adopted into the family of God, chosen by God and blessed in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We go from standing condemned in our own sin to standing forgiven for our sins through the substitutionary, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He did what no person could do. He did what only he could do. He was that perfect, holy sacrifice, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, that takes away our sin. We go from objects of God's wrath under his just judgment for our sins to recipients of God's extravagant grace and unending mercy and lavish love because Jesus took the wrath of God for us fulfilling all righteousness, and rose again in sure victory over sin and death. We've been given eternal life now. Abundant life now. We've been given the Holy Spirit who's that change agent, that counselor, that guarantee the seal of our eternal inheritance to the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. Rich mercy, great love, amazing grace dead in our trespasses, to alive, alive with Christ together, raised up to new life, seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. That's how Ephesians starts. That's like a wow. That's like a wow with a double wow, wow. You know, in just the last few moments, I just described for us the sprinkles that are on top of the icing, that's on top of the cake of the spiritual changes that Jesus Christ does in our lives when Jesus takes our hearts. Our relationship with Jesus changes everything. Ephesians goes on to teach us how when Jesus changes everything for us spiritually, part of that change is that he brings us into his church. His body, his plan for reaching the world with the gospel. Don't ever let anyone tell you that being an active part of a Christ-centered church is optional in the Christian life. It is not. 
You will never find a follower of Christ mentioned in the New Testament as a lone ranger, as a, a standalone, an island unto himself. Never. There is no such thing as a good Christian who is not part of a Christ-centered, Bible-believing, teaching, preaching church. To be a good follower of Christ, one has to be an active participant in the church because, why? Because God has ordained the church to be his agent of activity on planet Earth. The church is God's tool to change the world. God's outreach plan for reaching the world comes through the church. God's outreach plan for loving this hurting world comes through the church. God's outreach plan for displaying Jesus, the body of Christ, for all to see is through the church. The church is not a museum. We don't hold up ancient relics of the past and and just hold on and cling to them. The church is... It's not a club, someplace you go to feel good about yourself. Church is not a social organization where you go to help out our community. No, the church is the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. The church is the heart and the grace of Jesus to the world. The church is the very compassion and love of Jesus on display. The church is the sharer and the defender of the truth. The church is the single most important institution in God's plan for reaching this world. Our video said, Today you didn't just come to a building, you came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The Apostle Paul goes on and on about God's amazing creation of the church. From Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6, essentially two chapters of this six-chapter book, it's all about God's revealed mystery, the church. Ephesians says the church is the place where the far-off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That the church is where the dividing walls of society are broken down by the peace of Christ. That the church is one body through the cross, all with equal access through the Holy Spirit. The church is the household of God whose foundation was forever set by the prophets and the apostles and Jesus as the cornerstone. That the church is the very dwelling place of God. When believers gather together as the church, God is in their midst in a dynamic and glorious way. The mystery has been revealed and exposed for all to see. God's creation, the church, born that some 2,000 years ago on that day of Pentecost, has become the greatest change agent this world has ever known. The oneness and unity of the church is one of the main ingredients in this supernatural thing that God has created. We are one with each other because we are one in Christ. Ephesians 3.10 says that the body of Christ is the display of the very wisdom of God, fulfilling his eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church's main mission is to be the transmitter, the purveyor of the gospel, the good news. Listen to how the gospel is described for us there in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. In this prayer that Paul has in the midst of all this teaching on the church, Paul says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The good news is that by faith, our hearts through Jesus Christ, and according to the riches of his glory, we can experience the unbounding love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. There is no greater news in the entire world than the truth of the gospel. Chapter 4 goes on to describe unity in the church as one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's a reoccurring word there, right? One. Unity in the church is not just about people getting along with other people. But it's about people getting along because they are unified by a singular, defining focus. One faith, one Lord, one body, one mission. See, the church is not about you. The church is not about me. The church is about us together, focused on Christ. Ephesians 4.11 and following says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. For Poland Village Baptist Church, to be a biblical church, we need to be about equipping one another for the work of the ministry. For building each other up until we all, y'allins, us all, you know, we put that, all of us, attain to the unity of the faith, attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, attain to maturity, attain to a measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be part of a church that's attaining to the measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ? Amen. I'm excited about that. Serving one another, supporting one another, attaining unity and faith and knowledge and Jesus and maturity. That is church. The church is the dynamic body of Christ, active, relevant, powerfully proclaiming the truth of God's word. Our relationship with Jesus changes everything. One of the ways that is to be most evident in our life is in the church. We have gathered together this morning, as Ephesians 3.21 says, to give glory to Jesus Christ in the church. Church is supposed to be one of the most special and unique moments of our week. Abounding unity and overflowing love, honest conversations, uplifting encouragement, unconditional acceptance, real people changed by a real faith with a living hope. Church is not an institution to be maintained. It is an inspiration for our lives. Let's work together to make our church all that Jesus says it can be. And pray for me and our leaders as we try to lead our church to live out these amazing truths of God's amazing creation, his church. Our relationship with Jesus changes everything. 
including our relationship with ourselves. As Ephesians goes on in Ephesians chapter 4 and the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, it's all about the process of change, the process of personal spiritual growth. There is, there is no such thing as a person who comes to Christ and is not radically changed from the inside out. The scripture teaches us that when Christ comes into our lives, he makes all things new. The process of growing into this newness is called sanctification. That is becoming more holy, becoming more like Christ, becoming more of a person day by day and year by year who is living dependent on Christ, growing in the spirit and maturing in their faith. It means change. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 teach us this process of biblical change that we looked at several weeks ago. It says we are to put off our old self, which belongs to the former manner of our life and is corrupt by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new self being created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You see, our relationship with Jesus changes us. Ephesians goes on to say, it challenges us to speak the truth, to not let our anger turn into opportunities for disobedience to God, to, to only let good words come out of our mouth, words of grace that build one another up, to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. Our relationship with Jesus teaches us to be pure, to seek purity, purity in our thoughts and our actions and our vocabulary, and to give thanks for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. These qualities are not natural to man, but can only be supernaturally attained through a changing, growing, maturing, putting off the old man, changing our thoughts, putting on the new man, relationship with Jesus Christ. Because our relationship with Jesus changes everything about us. How is Jesus changing you today? Our spiritual lives are changed, our church lives are changed, our individual lives are changed. And next in Ephesians, we see that our family relationships are changed. Our relationship with Jesus changes our marriage. Because both the husband and the wife are striving to follow the example of Jesus. Both are striving to apply God's word in their lives. With both the husband and wife wonderfully changed by the amazing grace of Christ, powerfully connected to his church, intentionally growing in their own lives, a godly marriage, a marriage between two people in love with Jesus, is the very picture of true biblical love. This is that biblically balanced, complementary relationship called marriage that we talked about a few weeks ago, where the wives, it says in Ephesians 5.24, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And where husbands are commanded to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, as Ephesians 5.25 says. You see, Jesus changes the very essence of our most important relationship. Jesus changes everything. Next in Ephesians, we see that our relationship with Jesus changes our family dynamics. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Parents are to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A Christian home is a special place where the working out of the gospel in real everyday life because of the child's relationship with a parent is based on Christ. And the parent's relationship with the child is based on Christ. We as parents often strive hard to 
think about what's the best thing to do for our children. That's proper and important. We've got to do that. But unfortunately, sometimes we forget that our relationship with Jesus changes everything. It changes the way we parent. And instead of parenting from a biblical perspective, we parent sometimes from a conventional wisdom, a simple paternal perspective. Here's the difference. Here's the question. Do I want what is best for my child? Or do I want what Jesus thinks is best for my child? See, there's a, there's a difference there. Here's an example I thought of. My child wants to play hockey. But because of available ice time, that means my child will miss almost every Sunday morning during the season. Hockey's great. He loves it. It teaches him important things about life. He has great friends on the team. What do you do? Do you do what's best for your child from a conventional wisdom perspective? It's only three months. You don't earn your way to heaven by going to church anyway. Or do you do what's best from your child from Jesus' perspective? Now, follow me along here. There's more going on. So, son, there's nothing in your life ever, ever, nothing. Even as a 12-year-old, there is nothing in your life ever more important than loving and serving Jesus. It is the most important aspect and the greatest privilege of your life. Parents, I hope you can say that to your child and believe that. I don't think it would be good to put what we want before what is spiritually best for us. Or perhaps, here's a more nuanced response that I think is pretty cool. Son, there is nothing in your life ever, nothing, even as a 12-year-old, nothing in your life ever that's more important than loving or serving Jesus. It is the most important aspect and the greatest privilege of your life. So if we go ahead and do the hockey, what are some extra things that you can do during the hockey season that will help keep your focus on Jesus? Maybe we can talk to the pastor and see if he has some ideas to help us. You see, instead of letting the opportunity replace important spiritual growth opportunities for your child, you keep your focus on what is most important to you. Jesus. And you challenge your child to keep what is most important focused on them. For them is Jesus. It's not about the letter of the law. It's about keeping our focus on Jesus, the most important reality of our lives. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. Well, now we come to our passage today, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Passage is about our relationships at work. It says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering good service with a good will as the Lord, as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening them, knowing that he who, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Our tagline, we've 
we've said over and over and over again this morning already, rings so true in this passage. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes the way we work. Now, some of your Bibles there read the word slave. The Greek word there in verse 5 and is used throughout that passage is the word for slave. It's doulos. Sometimes we trip over that word. We think, well, isn't Paul kind of saying here that slavery is okay? Is he condoning slavery? Isn't slavery this horrific, terrible thing? Well, we, we struggle with interpreting it because we interpret it wrongly. When Paul wrote the word slave, what did he mean? In New Testament times, around one-third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Approximately 60 million were slaves. When the word slave comes, we picture this sinful, terrible, horrific slavery that has been pictured for us over these past few centuries. But slavery in New Testament times was nothing like that. Listen to this quote from Tim Keller. Since slavery in the Greco-Roman culture of the New Testament it was more like indentured servanthood. It's not what we think of as slavery. When you and I see the word slave in the Bible, we immediately think of 7th and 18th and 19th century New World slavery, race-based African slavery. When you do that, when you read it through those blinders, you aren't understanding what the Bible's teaching. Historian Murray Harris wrote a book about slavery, what it was like in the first century of the Greco-Roman world. He says that in the Greco-Roman times, number one, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated off from the rest of society in any way. Often people of the very same race, you know, of the very same ethnicity, were both the masters in the house, and the slaves in the house. Number two, slaves were more educated than their owners in many cases and many times held managerial positions. Number three, from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not themselves usually poor and often accrued enough personal capital to buy themselves out of their slavery within seven years. Number four, very few persons were slaves for lives in the first century. Most expected to be free for sure in the first ten years or by the latest in their late thirties. In contrast to New World slavery, 17th, 18th century slavery was race-based. That was the default mode that you would be a slave for life. And African slave trade was started and resourced through kidnapping which the Bible unconditionally condemns in 1 Timothy 1 and in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Therefore, while early Christians like St. Paul discouraged first century slavery, saying to slaves, get free if you can, they didn't go on a campaign to end slavery. But 18th and 19th century Christians, when faced with new world slavery, did work for the abolition of slavery because it could not be squared in any way with biblical teaching. So the point is, when you hear someone say the Bible condones slavery, you say, no, it didn't. 
not the way you're defining the word slavery. It's not talking about that. Here's another great quote from a commentator. In Paul's day, a kind of terrible idleness had fallen over the citizens of Rome and the Roman Empire. Rome was the the mistress to the world, and therefore it was beneath the dignity of Roman citizens to work. Practically all the work was done by slaves, even doctors and teachers, the closest friends of the emperors, their secretaries, that dealt with letters and appeals, that managed the finances of the empire, were slaves. It is always so important that we don't read our definition into the biblical text but instead we draw out the true historical grammatical teachings of the Bible. That is why this passage and its application and its teaching fits so comfortably within our employee and boss relationship. Because that much more uh, images the idea of what's going on there than New World slavery. So everyone who's an employee here this morning, God has a word for you. Here it is. Obey your bosses. Christian, would your boss describe you as a willing employee who strives hard to excel in his responsibilities? The Bible says to obey not just when your boss is reasonable, not just when it makes sense to you, but just to simply obey. A Christian employee endeavors to get paid for what they work for. Not to get paid for as little as they could work for, not to get paid to barely meet the minimum standards of the job, hard work, doing what your supervisor says, when and how they want it to be done, is the Christian way of work. When it describes that we're supposed to obey, what should be a Christian's attitude at work? The Bible doesn't call for begrudging obedience, laced with resentfulness and jealousies. First, the Bible says, as it describes for us now these details of our attitude of obedience, the Bible says to obey your boss with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Paul uses that saying three other places in the scriptures. Two times uh, about believers and once about himself. So if you looked at these other passages, try to figure out what is he saying here. The idea here is that we're not supposed to obey because we're afraid. That's not what the sentence is saying. It's not about being afraid of your boss. It's about being humble and respectful. We're just supposed to be displaying an attitude of willing submission that all Christians are called to have. Ephesians 5.21 challenges believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Secondly, it says our attitude is to be with a sincere heart. Sincerity is what you see is what you get. Sincerity, singleness, sincerity is all in there. It's a lack of duplicity. It's not half-hearted. It's not hypocritical. Our work is to be done with the same attitude that we have when we are serving Jesus Christ. That leads directly to our next attitude. We're, We're to obey our supervisors when they are watching and when they're not watching. Not with eye service as people pleasers. We have all worked with people that when the boss shows up, They are the kindest, friendliest, hardest working people that that boss has ever met. And as soon as that boss is out of view, boom, there they are, right? Right back to complaining about work, complaining about the boss, 
complaining about all the things. Guess what? A Christian employee does not do that. A Christian employee is not an eye-pleaser and a people-pleaser. A Christian employee knows that if you can't say anything nice, you don't say anything at all. That's great old-fashioned wisdom there, right? A Christian employee works hard at his job when the boss is watching, when the boss is not watching. We're to obey, um, as said, lastly, our attitude is supposed to be the same at work as it is when we're serving Jesus in other areas of our lives, like at church. We're to obey our bosses. We're, as Jesus would be our boss, as a bondservant of Jesus, doing the will of God from our hearts. Because we know full well that God is our ultimate boss and everything we do, everything we do, everything we do is a reflection of our relationship with Jesus Christ. The verse finishes with an encouraging word. It says, God sees everything and he will reward you for a job well done, whether your boss ever sees it or not. We don't work to please our boss. We work please our Lord. Radical teaching for believers who have dedicated their lives to Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Paul turns his attention to the bosses. You see, in Christianity, as followers of Christ, there's no hierarchy. At work, you may be the boss. At church, you may be your servant. At work, you may be the employee. At church, you may be the leader. See, we're one in Christ. Those Worldly distinctions all melt away when we bond together as one, as his body. That's exactly the challenge that Paul gives the bosses. First, he tells them to do the same thing that you just told the servants to do. Do the same thing I just told them. What's good for the goose? Good for the gander, right? Golden rule. We know that golden rule. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. That's from the Bible, Matthew seven twelve. Listen to this. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Then he specifically tells them to stop threatening them. It was common for masters to threaten their servants with cruelty and threats because they had the power. The masters have the power. The bosses have the power. The slaves in that day had little to no legal rights and could be directed at will by their masters. Paul says, no Christian, no follower of Christ should ever treat their servants that way. And nowadays, when you think about it, only an ill-equipped boss motivates their employees by threats. It's not a Christian way of motivating. Paul gives the masters two reasons for his commands. First is that God is the master of the master. As Christians, God is the boss. The master of both the boss and the employee. Paul is reminding the masters that they will be held accountable to the very same God that their servants will be. The second motivation it says there is that for the master is God. The master God is fairness. God is fair. God is the ultimate just judge. Nothing can sway him from the perfect judgment on both our actions and our hearts. You see, the very same eternal evaluation will fall on all people, no matter what our status on the earth. That is the ultimate equalizer of all people. 
Think about this now. The king, the peasant. The rich, the poor. The death row inmate, the nationally known religious leader. The complete unknown, nameless servant of God. The greatest known people in all the world. All people, every single one, everyone, each one of us will stand under the exact same eternal evaluation of Christ. Now that's one performance review that's going to be amazing. And it's that's one performance review that each one of us is going to fail. Do you know that? We can't do it. You know, we can't. We can't do it. We're going to fail. Everyone's going to fail. Not a one of us can meet the mark. God's Holy standard is way up there and we're going to go, we're just going to bow our heads in failure at that judgment. But guess what? Guess what's on my performance review? That I hope is on your performance review. Stamped all over the page in red ink. Stamped all over it. You can't hardly read the page at all. Because stamped all over it's a word. It's a word Jesus. Stamped all over that performance review. Because only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Only in Jesus, as we stand at that eternal evaluation, at that great performance review of our lives, only if Jesus is stamped all over that page, are you able to stand. Because we're standing in Jesus. If Jesus isn't on that page, if you're standing there alone with just your performance review, if you're standing there alone saying, I've earned this, Jesus, I'm in. You're not in. Only through Jesus can we become the righteousness of God and adopted into God's family? Have you come to Jesus by grace through faith? When you stand before God at that ultimate performance review, will Jesus be stamped all over it? Or will you stand ready for judgment? A relationship with Jesus changes everything. If you fit in, if you're just like the rest of the employees at work, then you should probably evaluate how well you are keeping these commands of the Scripture for you today. Are you the kind of supervisor who exemplifies the golden rule? Do you work like Jesus is your boss? Would you work like that if Jesus was standing next to you? Would you say that about your boss if Jesus was your coworker? Has your relationship with Jesus really changed everything we went through from the beginning to this point? Because, folks, some of the greatest opportunities you will have in your life, some of the greatest opportunities you will have in your life is to be a good Christian employee. And what God will do with that can be amazing and powerful, life-changing for you, and for those people that you meet. Because Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you for the sweeping truth of Ephesians, how amazing it is. And it brings us to this point of change. Lord, we want to be Christian employees. We want to be men and women of God that are followers of God 24-7, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., in that office, in that factory, you know, working on those cars, whatever it may be. But we want you working through us and 
us living and working in you. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.